We wondered about in the bleak midwinter. See amid the winter snow and all that stuff. And some of you will be fed up because you were thinking you were going to go away over Easter. You're going to go camping or caravanning or something. And for some unknown reason to me, you decided to call it off. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were more committed to the cause. And they went on a camping trip, and after a good meal, as you do, they lay down for the night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions of stars. What does it tell you, asked Holmes. Watson pondered for a moment. Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies, potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, said Watson to Holmes. Holmes was silent for a little longer. It tells me that someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) And I want to ask the question this morning... What do those verses from Mark chapter 16 that Liz read to us just a moment ago, what do they tell us? What is it saying? I invite you to grab the Bible that's in front of you in the pew, and maybe you haven't opened a Bible for years. I'd encourage you this morning just to open it up at page 1024 where those words are. And we're just going to walk together through those short but powerful verses. Verses packed with meaning. As you're finding them, let me just introduce them to you. It's coming to the end of Mark's story of Jesus' life. Mark writes action-packed. Mark's gospel is the shortest. It's the bluntest. It's the most concise. He packs almost every verse with meaning. And he's telling, sharing, the eyewitness account of those who walked and travelled and shared time with Jesus. Much of what Mark wrote came firsthand from Peter, who's mentioned in the passage, and from the other disciples. And we pick up the story at the beginning. The Sabbath was over. Jesus was killed just before the Sabbath. And some of the women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Where were the men? The men were hiding away behind locked doors. Such is the courageous uh, aspect of the male form even this day. So the women are out doing the business and the men are locked away. And they're trudging through the early morning mist, making their way out of the city up to perform this somber task. They had no reason for hope. Now that the Sabbath was over, they were free to travel and they were carrying the spices with them to anoint Jesus' body. They hadn't had time on the Good Friday afternoon before sunset. And all four Gospels, all four stories about Jesus are utterly consistent in the fact that the disciples, not one of them, not one of them expected Jesus to rise again from the dead. Jesus was gone. Their hopes were shattered, disappointed, disillusioned. These women went to their task. 
resurrection had absolutely no place on their agenda as they went to the tomb. The idea, therefore, that's been used down the centuries, that the disciples so expected, so wished, so longed to see Jesus rise from the dead, that they began hallucinating his appearances, bears absolutely no resemblance to the fact of the truth. They went to the tomb to anoint a dead body. Not expectant, just despairing. Not full of hope, but utterly confused about all that had happened. If this was God's man, why had it ended this way? There was such promise. But as it had seemed to them, the three years had gone so quickly, and it was over before it had almost started. It really would take a resurrection to turn these first disciples around. And as they neared the place of the tomb, they got stuck into some of the practicalities. They asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance? Typical of Palestinian tombs cut away in the rock was that the entrance to the tomb would slope down and they would roll a large boulder down into the slope, digging a groove, a trench in front of the tomb's entrance so that once the big boulder was in place, not even a gang of men would be able to move it. The place was full of robbers that would steal even from dead men's graves and so they secured graves in this kind of way. Why were the women going there knowing that the tomb would be closed that way? We do not understand. They're lost in their grief. They're hoping that someone, somehow, they can get back into that tomb and offer Jesus some last and final dignity. And then they turn the last corner. And unexpectedly and suddenly they see that something extraordinary is about to burst into their lives. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. The boulder that separated them from their master had already been removed. The great divide between the living and the dead was already cleared away. The great divide between the living and the dead was already cleared away, and it still is. And with hearts pounding fast, we read that they step inside, uh, looking to see where the dead corpse has been laid, expecting the pungent smell of a body already in decay in the hot climate. And no, there was a young man in dazzling white, an angel no less. The very place of death, now filled with the presence, the mystery of God, and they were alarmed, and who wouldn't have been? And just as an aside, notice what it says. They entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Sitting on the right side? What an incredibly incidental detail. Mark the writer must have got it from the ladies. No, no, not not with me. Who cares where this man's sitting? Who on earth is he and where is Jesus and why was the stone rolled away are questions that demand to be answered. But where he was sitting, who cares? Nobody's looking for a spatial plan of the seating arrangements in the tomb. And yet there it is. He was sitting on the right side. And why is it there? It's just slipped in there as a reminder that these were ordinary people telling the story of what they've seen and heard. You know, you ask people to tell a story and they fill it with such incidental, unnecessary details sometimes. Some folk are more prone to it than others. 
You ask the time and they tell you how to make a watch. You know the kind of people. And if you're married to one, God bless you. You can, you can imagine Mark preparing his gospel and he's saying to the ladies, would you just tell me one more time so I can get it down? And they're going to Mark. We couldn't believe it. The stone was gone. That massive stone just rolled away. We've got no idea who moved it out of the way. And we stepped inside. Our hearts were bursting. We didn't know what we would see. Had the grave been robbed already? And there the platform was where the body should have been. And the grave clothes, they were all folded as if Jesus was inside side but he wasn't there and there on the right hand side there was this man sitting they were telling what they'd seen and what they'd heard the idea that the resurrection is some kind of theological gloss on a man whose mission ended in failure has have missed the reading of all four accounts that are packed with what people saw and felt and understood This was a real event that happened to real people that so changed them that they went on to change the world. And Jesus Christ has been changing the world through people ever since. Let's pick up the account again in verse 6. Don't be alarmed, this young man said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Don't think you've come to the wrong place. You are right. This is the right tomb. There are lots of tombs on this hillside, but this is the right one. You haven't taken the wrong path in your grief. And yes, this is the Jesus who was dead and buried. The Jesus who was crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then the angel says some very important things. And I want to leave you Three important things for you to talk to one another about throughout the rest of this day. Three things for you to think about. What were the three things that, that, well, there are more than three here, but just three for this morning, that pour out from this messenger from heaven at such an important moment? Here comes the first one, verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Why does Peter get a special mention? After all, wasn't it Peter who had made such boasts of bravado? All those great promises of allegiance. Whatever the others do, Jesus, I'll stick by you. Only for him, like the others, to desert Jesus before a slave girl at the very first opportunity. Yes, that Peter. Go and tell the disciples, and that Peter. Because the one who has failed the most is the one who needs to hear and to know the most. Where was Peter? Physically, he was locked uh, away behind closed doors, gripped with fear of the authorities. Emotionally, he was broken-hearted because he'd failed his greatest friend and kept his word not one bit. Spiritually, he was ruined. He'd pinned all his hopes on Jesus, and now his master was dead. Of all the disciples, Peter needed to know that Jesus was alive. Peter needed to know that despite his huge failure, Jesus still wanted him on his team and in his gang. Peter needed to know that Jesus was alive and loved him still. Go tell and Peter. I want to ask this morning here in church, maybe you haven't been in church for a long time. Are you an and Peter this morning? Are you feeling crushed and broken by the things that have happened in your life, maybe the choices that you've made? Do you feel guilty sometimes, hopeless about the future, like the world has stopped and the future is gone? Every Peter needs to know that Jesus is alive. Every Peter needs to know that all that is past, all the mistakes and the failures, the Bible uses the word sins, all that stuff 
can be forgiven. Imagine being forgiven by God for the stuff uh, you can't even forgive yourself for. Peter needed to know sins can still be forgiven. But Jesus' healing touch is still available. His powerful word is still there. Peter needed to know his offer of a brand new start still stands. Maybe you feel locked away this morning. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. You're all locked up inside. Hey, the mission of the risen Christ is underway changing this world from the inside out and he wants you on his team. I don't care what you think about the mistakes that you've made. I don't care what you think about how good or otherwise you are. I don't care whether the the sheer hopelessness of what you see as your life fills your gaze every morning. I don't care whether every morning you get up and every night you go to bed and you feel heavy about the way things are on your life. The risen Jesus says, I want them, that person, that and Peter to know and I want them on my team. We don't need to be locked away. Afraid of ourselves and afraid of one another because he's alive. So go and tell the disciples and Peter and for that matter Mary and Tom and Fred and George and Simon, whatever your name, because he wants you on his team. And these 40 days of community that we've been sharing together over these past few weeks have really seen some of us recapture the excitement, the joy of being on his team. We're here together. We're here for a purpose. We are part of God's Mission to change this world from the inside out. And the very first thing the resurrected Jesus would say to every single one in this room, I want, I long for you to know and to be on my team. And with Jesus as the leader, anything is possible. And imagine being on a team that is changing this world from the inside out. Imagine bringing being on a team that is an agent from heaven to turn darkness into light. Imagine being on a team that brings the greatest hope there ever is to a dying world. Imagine being on a team that will go on into eternity. He wants you on his team. And then listen to what the message was. Go tell his disciples and Peter That includes you and me. Go tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Galilee? Why Galilee? They were in Jerusalem, the great capital city. Why Galilee? It's like being in Cardiff and God saying, go to Ipswich. I mean, why? It makes no sense. Go to Galilee. Until you remember, until you remember, Galilee was their home. It was where their families were. It was where their jobs were and had been. It was where they had friends and neighbours and cousins, brothers and sisters. Jerusalem was a place for high days and holidays, but Galilee was their life. So it was back at home with their families, with the people they worked with, with the people they played games and sport with, that the risen Jesus wanted to meet them. It was there. You see, Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that we could have endless debates about resurrection and immortality. He didn't rise from the dead as a theological conundrum or to provide numerous topics of postgraduate work. He rose from the dead that he might meet us in living power 
in our homes, in our places of work, in our communities, with our families, with our friends, wherever we are and wherever we've come from, that there in the midst of our lives, the risen Lord of glory comes even today to meet with us, changing us, transforming us, offering us his abounding love and his resurrection power. That's why he lives. Phrase we use a lot around here. He lives to make an extraordinary difference in your ordinary life. Go to Galilee. I'll meet you there. It is utterly scandalous for the church or anybody else to behave as though the resurrection of Jesus is something religious, something tied to an ecclesiastical ceremony, something locked inside a religious institution. Where you are, there. Go to that place. I'll meet you there, says the risen Lord. A great invitation for you and me to have a living, loving, dynamic, life-transforming relationship with the Lord of glory will be with us now and on into eternity right where we are. And one of those days I'm going to get a little excited about something like that. Hey, right where you are. In your ordinary, everyday lives. Monday through Sunday. There. There. Go to Galilee, the place where you live, the place where your friends are, those that you love are, and I'll meet you there. And if you've never experienced, as I said in the pool, the joy of forgiveness, the sheer wonder of knowing God, the utter relief of knowing that your future is secure, to know that his presence in you today is a guarantee for all that's to come. If you've never met him, then you can meet him today right where you are. And Jesus longed to meet those first disciples and he longs to meet each of us. And then finally we read, trembling and bewildered. And who wouldn't have been? Who wouldn't have been? You know, the biggest worry perhaps about the church is that we're not trembling and bewildered often enough, don't you think? Trembling and bewildered by the sheer power, awesomeness of God that they'd suddenly become faced with. They fled from the tomb and on their way back they said nothing to anyone and they raced back to those first disciples. These women had come face to face with the awesome power of the living God. They'd witnessed, they'd glimpsed, they'd seen something of another world. They'd seen something of resurrection, something that most of us here will need to wait until we die to get a glimpse of, but they'd seen it. No wonder they trembled, no wonder they were bewildered. The Greek word bewildered is, is really full. I mean, English is just rubbish. Uh, uh, trying to express some of the depth of it. it. It's rich, it means stunned and perplexed, but awestruck, but filled with a kind of inexpressible joy and jubilation. It's not a fearful word in a, in a negative sense, but it's a, wow, we've been caught up in something so big, so beyond us, so powerful, I'm going to put my life into this thing because it comes from heaven. It was bewilderment that gave way to inexpressible, utter, sheer, incredible joy. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, the words there, they were afraid, but filled with joy. It's a reminder to the church and to the world that the God we worship, you cannot put him in a box. You cannot contain him. You cannot constrain him. He will do what he will do. And in the dead places of all our lives, to the tombs of our lives, even if you go there, you will meet him It is resurrection power if you choose to trust him and to live for him this day. Our God even raises dead people. Woo! 
And one day, all of us in Christ will be raised. This isn't theory. This isn't something to hypothesize about. This is something that I will experience. And you too in Christ. The dead in Christ will be raised. And may the bewilderment that perhaps you have felt about your life and the story thus far give way to inexpressible joy as you meet the one no longer dead but alive. That's the reality that the risen Jesus brings. It was quite a morning. Let's sing about it together.